I'm going to read from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. It would be good if you have a Bible, if you could open it at Matthew chapter 26, if you want to use the ones that are in the pews in front of you. Um, you'll find the reading on page 995. 995 of the Bibles that are in the pews. And we're going to read the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And we'll end the reading at verse 16. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for all that they teach us about you, about ourselves, about the Lord Jesus Christ and his great love for us. As we turn our attention to this record in Matthew's Gospel, we pray that you would bless our meditation upon it. And as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross, may all of what we do together here this morning be a real blessing. May it glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 26. I want to look this morning at some contrasts that appear in these first 16 verses and to draw out a few lessons from them. The first of the contrasts is a move from teaching to dying. In verses 1 and 2 of the passage that we've just looked at together here, just read together, Matthew makes it very clear that there's another significant shift about to take place. You may remember last week as we looked at chapters 24 and 25, We noticed at the very beginning of chapter 24 the very major shift that was taking place with Jesus leaving the temple and all the symbolism that was associated with that, with Jesus walking out of that context and that situation, never to return to it in the light of all that had happened in the previous few days. 
And now at the beginning of chapter 26, we have another one of those important moments. Throughout the text of Matthew's Gospel, you may remember that we have come across on several occasions this phrase, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. It's a phrase that is used at the end of each of the five major teaching sections recorded in Matthew's Gospel. So we know that we have come to the end of that section when we hear those words, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. What's particularly striking in this occasion is that when Jesus had finished saying all these things, when that teaching on the Mount of Olives had been brought to a conclusion, he now very clearly sets his face to dine. And that's the transition, the contrast that is taking place here in the text. The Passover is but two days away. And the Son of Man, Jesus says, will be handed over to be crucified. There will be no more sermons. There will be no more teaching on the Mount of Olives. What will happen will be hugely intense, but now that has come to an end. And Matthew is closing for us that phase of Jesus' ministry and opening up for us the next phase, which is his death. And just as Jesus' teaching ministry was purposeful and intentional, so his anticipation of his death is full of purpose and very intentional. That's the first contrast. The second contrast that strikes me as we read this text is the contrast between conspiracy and intrigue on one hand and celebration and intimacy on the other. There are two scenes that are painted for us in Matthew's Gospel here in chapter 26. The first scene is, in my mind, a scene that is very dark. It's something that's taking place. It's a meeting that's taking place behind closed doors. It's a discussion between a group of men, a discussion that is very fraught and very intense. What Matthew says in verse 3 is that the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted to arrest Jesus and to kill him. The entrance into this room, wherever it was in Caiaphas's palace, is presumably carefully guarded. Presumably only those who are entitled to be in there or who can be trusted are given entrance to it. It would appear that even some of the leading Pharisees are not included, or some of the scribes. This is the chief priests and the elders. And the scene is set for us of people meeting in a room. And the atmosphere of that room, wherever it was in that palace, seems to me to be an atmosphere of anxiety, of hatred, of violence, of darkness. Last week, a man called Thomas Holron got off a train in Carrickfergus. He had travelled to Carrickfergus from this very area of South Belfast. He was going to visit his sister. I know very little about the man or of what he was accused within his own community. But in the short walk between the train station and his sister's home, he was set upon and beaten to death. Somewhere in a room in Carrickfergus, men sat and discussed Thomas Holron. They had arranged for some of their number to watch him. They had arranged for some of their number, probably the younger members of their organization, to be responsible for the attack should the opportunity arise. In a room somewhere in Carrickfergus, it was decided that Thomas Holron should die. It beggars belief. 
It beggars belief that there are thugs running parts of our community who actually believe that they have the moral right and superiority to arrange the death of others. It's nauseating to think that it happens in our own towns. But it's actually not that different from what was happening in Caiaphas' home. Caiaphas was a rather notorious individual. There was a time when the office of high priest was properly filled by the descendants of Aaron, who once appointed held that position for life. In Jesus' day, it had become an appointment not unlike other appointments in the contemporary political and religious world. It had become an appointment within the gift of the Roman governor, a political appointment. And Caiaphas had achieved his status not by virtue of his piety, but his politics. Caiaphas held his position not by virtue of his service, but his scheming. What Caiaphas didn't need and wasn't prepared to tolerate was trouble in the temple. No one was going to be allowed to destabilize the community when he was in charge. Instability in the community would mean the displeasure of the Romans, which in turn could mean the end of his career. And this is the scene in Caiaphas' palace. A meeting somewhere with a group of men. A meeting of conspiracy and intrigue. The NIV even translates one of the terms using the word sly, which says everything to us about what is going on in that particular context. The second scene that Matthew gives us is very different. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. So there's a meeting going on in Jerusalem in the home of Caiaphas, And there's a celebration going on in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, across the valley and on the other hill. And now we're in Bethany, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. We're in Simon the leper's home. Someone who must have been cured of his leprosy, otherwise he wouldn't be hosting a celebration in his own home. Nobody would have been there. It's quite likely that he was healed by Jesus. Jesus seems to be the chief guest in the home. And I'm sure you can imagine it. I'm sure you can in your own heads create the kind of scene. The room is full of conversation. You can smell the food cooking. You can see the food being brought out. No doubt Martha's involved in all of that somewhere. The doors of the house are open. The lamps are lit. The people are coming out and in. Many of the people in the village of Bethany are dropping in for a share of the meal or a chat. The guest of honour at the head of the table is Jesus, who is in Bethany a hero. Lazarus and his sisters will be there, Lazarus raised from the dead. Simon himself may well have been one of those people cured by Jesus. We're just a few days away from the Passover and there are lots of other friends and family members who are in Bethany as well. And the conversation is flowing. It's a very different kind of scene. There's humour and satisfaction. There's no doubt reflection in the drubbing that the hypocrites received from Jesus in the temple a few days previous. The glorious entry into Jerusalem, all the events that have been taking place, part of the conversation is the food, the aroma of it fills the room and the people move about freely and the lamps are burning and the warm evening air embraces the guests as the crickets and the other insects outside provide the background noise. This is a scene of celebration. But it has a moment of the most amazing intimacy. For there is kindness and love in this room. A woman comes with a little alabaster jar of perfume. It has probably come from India. 
It's expensive. It's very powerful. She comes, and you can't do this remotely. She comes, and she must settle right behind Jesus as he reclines at the table, or beside him. And she breaks the jar, and she pours the precious ointment on Jesus' head. And I can imagine her running her fingers through her, her, his hair as she separates and disperses the ointment. I wonder is this the same incident recorded in John 12? Most people think it is. Is this Mary? Quite likely. In which case she not only anoints his head but she takes and pours some on his feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. I'm trying to imagine what that actually looked like. I'm trying to imagine how you would capture that or portray that in a film. I'm trying to imagine the human touch that is involved here. The smell. I'm trying to imagine her rising from being at his feet and throwing her hair back. I'm trying to imagine the smell not only now lingering around Jesus but everywhere that Mary goes. She carries the same smell. Two people in that context of celebration linked by a powerful aroma. An aroma that speaks of devotion and honor. An aroma that speaks of love and affection. The tenderness, the affection, the respect, the devotion, the honor that is expressed in this is nearly as overwhelming as the smell itself. I reckon the disciples are embarrassed by the intimacy of this moment. I suspect they're full of bluster. Jesus doesn't seem to mind what's happening to him. They seem to complain about the waste of money. It sounds like one of those embarrassing moments in which we struggle to find something to say that's relevant to the situation but doesn't address it directly. You know, like when you're visiting somewhere and your hosts start to rye. One of those simmering, smouldering ryes just under the surface and you get the feel of it and you think, oh dear, what have we trodden on here tonight? And you try to keep the subject moving so that it doesn't become embarrassing. Why this waste, the disciples say. This could have been our Passover alms money. This is a whole year's wages. And the question is posed to Jesus, but it's an attempt to swat the woman away. Like she were a wasp lighting on the food on the table. It's an attack on the inappropriate intimacy of the woman. And what is Jesus' response? Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. Not just a kind thing. Not just a good thing. But a beautiful thing. So we have two main scenes. One is dark and smells of conspiracy and intrigue and death. It is a dark scene of violence because there's going to be violence as a consequence. This killing of Jesus is not an unintended consequence of his arrest. It's the whole reason for the discussion. And the other is completely different. 
It's bright. It's a celebration in a home of a man who was cured in Bethany. It's full of the experience and memories of healing, of deliverance from death. And it smells of beauty. So much beauty that the men are beginning to feel awkward. And the third contrast that we have in this passage is the contrasting values put on Jesus. The value of king or slave. The anointing of Jesus' head um, symbolizes a huge sense of respect and honor. Mary could not have known the full extent of what she was doing. And even as Jesus speaks about her anointing him for his burial, there's something I'm sure that many people in the room were struggling with, struggling to make sense of. And certainly, I think, not expecting it to be within the next few hours. But this anointing is is like a a symbolic honouring. And it's the kind of thing that you find in the Old Testament and many other situations. When a king is being appointed, the king would be anointed. And this is, in Matthew's terms, the son of David being anointed as the suffering servant of the Lord. As the king who defies all human expectation. The coming king, the Christ. So Matthew's bringing all of this in at this point so that we don't miss the significance of what is being said here. And there's a sense in which the woman honours him as her Lord. She doesn't realise the deeper significance of what she's doing and preparing him for his death. But the value of the ointment, the cost of it, the anointing of the head, it all speaks of honour. It all speaks of kingship. And yet, leaving the room is a solitary figure. Someone who has excused himself and left the house and stepped out into the night and stepped out into the street of the village and started to make his way downhill from Bethany down into the valley. And then from the valley up towards the gate of the city And through the gates of the city. And as he moves through the gates of the city, undoubtedly encounters many people. People meeting in the streets, talking in the warm night. Lamps lit in the houses. The smell of food and celebration. Maybe people greeting him, speaking to him as he passes. But he makes his way in the darkness through the streets of the city until he comes to the palace of Caiaphas the high priest. And he knocks on the door and he's given entry. And I suspect there were one or two in there who recognize him, who know him, who maybe have had discussions with him before. And it's not long before he is given entry into that room, that room of darkness and conspiracy and intrigue. And he stands probably ill-dressed in comparison with the chief priests and the elders and the leaders, the wealthy, the political class of Jerusalem. And I suspect that there's one or two of them with a measure of satisfaction that their boy has come through. And he says, what will you give me? And they count out for him 30 pieces of silver. And you read in Exodus, in the book of the law, that traditionally 30 pieces of silver was the price that you paid to compensate someone for the death of a slave. If one of your animals had killed your neighbor's slave, then the compensation price was 30 pieces of silver. 
The prophet Zechariah, when he speaks about the servant of the Lord, the shepherd of the Lord, rejected by his people, comes to his people and says, well, okay, what will you give me for what I have done for you? And Zechariah records in Zechariah 11 that they counted out for me 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. This is no rabbi being sold as far as these people are concerned. This is a rabble rouser. This is no king that is being betrayed. This is just an ignorant Galilean. And in Bethany, the value on Jesus' head is the value fit for a king. A year's wages of the most expensive ointment that is possible to have so that everybody else is embarrassed by it. In Jerusalem, the value on Jesus is the price of a dead slave. It's hard to believe that it's all about the same man. And it's very hard to believe that someone can move between these two scenes. It's very hard to believe that someone can sit in the room and see and sense the value that is placed on Jesus as he is anointed by that ointment. And then go and trade him for 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. These three powerful contrasts are drawn out for us in the first 16 verses of Matthew's Gospel. And there are things going on here that I find deeply disturbing. And I want to share them with you. They may be of help to you. The first thing that I find deeply disturbing about all of this is the clarity of understanding and sense of intention in Jesus as he prepares for his death. The second thing that I find hugely disturbing here is the intimacy of the encounter with Jesus in Bethany. And the third thing that I find hugely disturbing is the journey which I have just described from Simon's house to the house of Caiaphas. But let's think of the first of those. The sense of clear intention with Jesus about his death. Some Sundays ago, Brian dealt with the issue of death and dying. And it's a remarkable thing when people can be strong and courageous in the face of death. Whether it's the prisoner of conscience who refuses to relent, even though it means death and loss of life. Whether it's the person who carries a terminal diagnosis. Whether it is the soldier marching into the enemy lines. To be able to be strong and to be bold in the face of death is a remarkable thing. What parallel is there, though, with Jesus in his situation at this point? To celebrate with friends who are rejoicing at all he has done for them and to know what injustice lies ahead. To savor the food and to nourish his body and know what cruelty lies ahead, what disfigurement and trauma lies ahead. What kind of steadfastness, what kind of courage is this? What kind of love is this? What kind of sacrifice is this? Especially in the context of such evil and conspiracy. I find it disturbing. And it's little wonder that John says in 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Little wonder that Paul, the intellectual, the teacher nevertheless focuses so much of his teaching on the theme of love which lies at the heart of what Jesus was all about so he says the only thing that counts is not religious rights not your ethnic background but faith expressing itself through love 
It's Paul who says these three endure faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's deeply disturbing to think that Jesus was not celebrating in Bethany ignorant of what lay ahead. Quite the opposite. As we have seen, everything he's been doing over the past week in Jerusalem is anticipating, is forcing the confrontation that will end in his death. What kind of intention, what kind of courage, what kind of love is this? As the songwriter puts it, what kind of love is this that gave itself for me? I am the guilty one, yet I go free. What kind of love is this? A love I've never known. I didn't even know his name. What kind of love is this? What kind of man is this? That died in agony. He who had done no wrong was crucified for me. What kind of man is this who laid aside his throne that I may know the love of God? What kind of man is this? But I find too the intimacy that had to be involved in the anointing of Jesus by the woman. Disturbing. I'm with the disciples. I'm scratching around for a comment to make and somewhere else to look in the room at those particular moments. I feel like children feel when they see their parents smooching. You know, they cry, stop it. They want to look somewhere else. I want to say, leave me alone with my doctrine to articulate. Leave me alone with my principles to work out. Leave me alone with a text to unravel. But leave me alone when it comes to intimacy with Jesus and all that kind of talk. I know that I struggle with this as a Christian. As some of you might. I can't easily do the intense praise and prayer thing. And yet, there are times as I sing and speak of the glory of Jesus Christ times when I know I am overwhelmed at the passion, the love, the sensitivity, the compassion in his touch, in his weeping over Lazarus, in his ministry. It's unnerving and it is uncomfortable. And I recognize that God did not simply make me with a head to reason, but also with a heart to feel. And I recognize that God will not allow me simply to encounter him in abstract terms of words and ideas, but forces me to encounter him through my fears, through my tears, through my joy, through hope, through laughter, and through pain. I'm not allowed by God to learn of him merely by intellect. I am to discover him like Simon the leper, like Mary and Martha the bereaved, like the psalmist whose life was constantly threatened, I am to discover him in the extremities of life. But can I accept that? Am I open to it? Are you? I'm not talking about wallowing in a subjective Christianity that we create out of our own feelings. I'm not talking about a Christianity which lives 
on a diet of God told me this or that or God wants me to do this or that or whatever it might be. And I'm not talking about a Christianity that is emotion and sentiment identified as the presence of God. No, I'm not talking about that kind of Christianity because that's defined by feeling. But I am talking about a Christianity that engages the feelings of us as human beings and engages us as people. In a Christianity that is defined by feeling, you end up with denial of reality. But a Christianity that engages our feelings, our emotions as people, allows us to see the reality of God in every situation. And that's the intimacy I see in Simon's house. That's the intimacy that disturbs me. That's the intimacy I must learn to embrace if I am to understand Jesus. At Julian Trevor's wedding last week, they had two readings from Philippians. The first was from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says to the church that he's writing to, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, it's a rhetorical question. It's what he expects. It's what he expects the people he's writing to to be able to relate to. Encouragement, comfort, love, tenderness, compassion. And a Christianity that is devoid of any knowledge of such things. Well, you have to ask, is it anything really to do with Christianity? Because Christianity is to do with us as whole people that are touched and transformed through the word of God by the power of God. In what we are, in how we think, in how we choose to live, in how we respond, in how we deal with difficulties. It's the same Paul, and another reading from Julian Trevor's wedding, in, says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The great Apostle Paul, the great theologian, the great writer, the great thinker, the great man of logic and argument, expects that people's hearts and minds will be overwhelmed by the peace of God in a way which will touch their daily lives, in a way which will transform the way we deal with anxiety and hatred and fear and disappointment and hurt and anger. But that can be a very disconcerting thing. And the third thing that really disturbs me about this passage is the journey from Simon's house to the house of Caiaphas. To be able to make that journey is a very scary thing. Here is a man who witnessed the intimacy. Was he threatened by it? Here is a man who makes his excuses, gathers his things, makes his way out onto the street, walks down through the village, across the valley, through the city, to the palace of Caiaphas and into that darkened room and sells his friend for the price of a slave. Here is a man who has witnessed the celebration of honor but seeks to hasten death. Here is a man who knows the value of Jesus as the Christ but is willing to sell him for the value of a dead slave. But what disturbs me about this is that it's not just Judas I see making that journey. 
It's me. And maybe you as well. Capable of making the same journey. Because I think the pictures that Matthew has presented to us are not just historical incidents. They are like cameos of everyday life. They are little cameo pictures of how it is that I live and I think. About how we live and we think. About how we can move between intimacy and treachery so quickly. With each other, with God, with Jesus Christ. In just a couple of moments, we're going to share together in communion. In communion, we will have fellowship with each other and with Jesus. Shortly, we're going to have a symbolic celebration meal. But when we go out, where do we go? When we go out, do we go out feeling we have simply witnessed the embarrassing intimacy of others from which we need to hide? Or do we go telling the story of honouring Christ when we leave? We leave on foot, we leave by car, we leave by bus, whatever. But where do you leave and go in your head? How much value do we really put on Jesus and what it means to be a Christian? Whose company do we keep in our heads? The company of the conspirators or the company of those who celebrate the goodness and the presence of Christ.